If you ever do a live tweet in which you mock creme de menthe as alcoholic toothpaste, may you not be so stupid when challenged about it to agree to drink a grasshopper live on your show. Chef Jonathan, this is for you. Ugh. And welcome to Sex and Whiskey. I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media, and we're here today to talk about Uncharted, the 11th episode of season three. Uncharted aired on November 26, 2017, and was written by Karen Campbell and Shannon Goss, and was directed by Charlotte Brandstrom, a French film director who has recently made her way into American TV, directing episodes of Arrow, Grey's Anatomy, and Chicago PD. Goss and Campbell have each written one episode of Outlander previous to this collaboration. Campbell wrote Creme de Moth, the episode that gave me hope that we were going to do a real dark Jamie arc, and Goss wrote The Doldrums, which had structural problems, but some really beautiful moment-to-moment -moment work. So these two together have written some of my favorite stuff from this season, and under some pretty bizarre circumstances, as they're new writers to the show, inheriting some wild car-on-two-wheels source material. The source Source material for this part of the book is truly wild. Have you ever tried to put socks on an octopus? I imagine that's what it must have felt like, trying to pull this part of the book into something comprehensible. And you have two choices, really. Follow the source material faithfully and present something that feels like a cross between Alice in Wonderland and Lost, or diverge from it and try to find some way to stitch what came before to what comes after. Neither of these are really ideal options. All right, let's go through the stones. In Uncharted, Claire floats in the water and finally beaches up on a seemingly deserted island, spending a few days doing battle with nature as she tries to find her way to some form of civilization, which finally shows up in the form of a pothead priest named Father Fogden. How did you come to be here? Claire recuperates for a few days under the distrustful eye of Fogden's territorial mother-in-law, Mama Sita, and Coco, his sentient coconut. Thankfully, Coco just reminded me that if you were to go over land, you might encounter maroons. She tries to get Fogden to take her to the nearby town, but Fogden resists until she convinces him that Coco agrees with her. Coco was just telling me that today's a, a good day to go to the village. When Mama Sita returns from the beach with the severed head of their beloved goat, Arabella, and mentions that a Chinaman killed and ate her, Claire realizes that it must be Yi Tian Cho. How do I get to the ship? On the beach, Jamie is leading the men, and we discover that Captain Rains and a few of the crewmen died in a storm that beached the Artemis. See, all sounds all dangerous. Hi, me lord. Claire rushes the beach and signals to Jamie, who rushes off the ship to reunite with his Sassanac. Jamie! Yi Tian Cho apologizes to Father Fogden, who then marries Fergus and Marsley on the beach before everyone gets back into the repaired Artemis to head for Jamaica and search for young Ian. But first, Claire and Jamie have fevered, funny sex in the captain's quarters. This must be what it's like making love in hell. First of all, let's just address the plain fact that nothing from the time Claire jumps off the ship through to the end of this episode makes really any sense at all. Claire discovers that Captain Leonard is going to turn Jamie in when they get to Jamaica, 
and the plan is to use Claire as bait. But her jumping off the ship doesn't change that plan at all. He can still use Jamie's belief that she's with Captain Leonard as bait. Jumping ship changes almost nothing about that scenario. The sensible thing to do, since she'll be in Jamaica for a few days before Jamie and have some time to plan, is to ride along to Jamaica, where she knows Jamie is going to be, and figure out some kind of way to warn him once she's there. Instead, she jumps off the ship when she's in sight of land in a town, but ends up passing out and floating on to some random island. But let's say, best case scenario, she did end up in the town that she was shooting for. There are no phones, no telegraphs, no way to communicate with the Artemis. She's not going to find passage on a ship that will get to Jamaica faster than the Porpoise and probably not even faster than the Artemis. So in her best case scenario, she arrives in Jamaica at least after they've jailed and maybe even after they've executed Jamie. But the best case scenario doesn't happen here. She's stranded for days on a seemingly deserted island. No water, no food, all manner of wildlife causing her no end of discomfort which on the probability set of all the things that could happen after jumping off the ship was wildly more probable than her finding and warning Jamie before he got to Jamaica. So none of this makes any sense at all. Her plan is beyond incomprehensible, and that's just not Claire. But then we spend, seriously, 15 minutes, a full quarter of our total time in this episode, following her through this transitional space between reality and this Alice in Wonderland fever dream that has her ending up in the grips of the Mad Hatter and the Queen of Hearts for a few days, before the Gabaldonian coincidence machine, which is revving high to the point of near combustion at this point, just happens to shipwreck Jamie on the very island where she landed. We are luckily spared most of Jamie's story. There was a storm, Captain Raines died, the next in command handed that command over to Jamie for reasons, and they're all stranded on the beach. Jamie's mutiny storyline from last week has no connection to anything that actually happened. And if we hadn't done that wild insanity, we'd still be in the same place we are right now. You can just lift that out from the story and nothing changes, which is a fair way to tell if you need something or not. Now, this is a fairly faithful translation of the book, with the exception of the one good unlikely coincidence on the porpoise, which we cut out. Now, readers, you know what that is. TV show watchers, don't worry about it. Doesn't matter now. I'm sure we're going to get to it later. When I started warning you about the car up on two wheels earlier in the season, this is what I was preparing you for. What was insane in the book is almost made more insane in the TV show, where we end up with this weird farcical energy on the beach wedding, all the way to the fun but totally inconsistent ending with Jamie and Claire having fevered sex in the captain's quarters while Yi Tian Cho listens at the door, smiling. I don't know how to talk about this episode. I really don't. This isn't a car on two wheels. This is Thelma and Louise driving off a cliff only to have a parachute suddenly appear and carry them into the clouds until they land on the Wicked Witch of the East and go off to find the wizard. Now, here's the thing. No one's claiming that Outlander is a documentary. We open the story with Claire traveling 200 years into the past through magical stones. But once we did that, we kept the rest of the world fairly realistic, and the tone of the story was fun and funny in places, but the tone was never farcical, never this wholly divergent from the world that had been created, the world that we believed in. These divergences fully break the world of the story as it's been laid out. And so a critical look on the story at this phase is near impossible because it has no anchor in anything that's come before it, or if we're to remain faithful to the book, anything that comes after. It's one of those places in the book that I just whistle past and wait until the car lands on all four wheels again. 
Granted, when we land on four wheels, we're still off-roading on unpaved terrain, but I'm so grateful for four wheels that I'm always like, all right, let's just keep this thing going then. So a traditional sex and whiskey criticism isn't something I can really offer this week because there's nothing traditional about this episode. We're so wholly disconnected from the reality of the world here that everything plays because nothing plays. So what I'm going to do is this. I'm going to tell you what I would have done with just this episode if I inherited what came before, had to build what comes after, had to start where it starts, and end where it ends. So wish me luck. If I don't make it to Jamaica, I could lose him forever. Then you must be reunited with him. There is nothing easy about the job of adapting Outlander, especially book three, Voyager. Presuming that I was told to pick up where we had Claire landing on the beach and take it to where she and Jamie are on the ship reunited, given what came before and what comes after, what would I have done to make it work as best I could? First, I would have started with what we want from the episode itself. This is predominantly Claire's episode, and we need to give her agency. We need to give this part of the story some meaning. She can't just float from one unlikely coincidence to another. She's smart, and we need her intelligence to create the situations that will save her and get her reunited with Jamie. In order to get her and Jamie together again, with the limitations of what came before, we're going to have to rev up the Gavaldonian coincidence machine, but let's try to rely on it as little as humanly possible, while also giving it some sort of context within the story itself. Make the GCM work for us instead of against us. So I'd have her wash up on the beach and show her, as she does, drying out her clothes, getting herself together, and figuring out a plan. As she wanders, I would have her find little white stones from time to time. At first, on the beach, they seem random. But further inland, she realizes that they aren't just landing there. They're marking a path. She follows that path and finds Father Fogden's house, an oasis of civilization in the middle of the wild jungle. First, she scopes it out, watching from a safe distance. She waits until nightfall and sneaks closer in, pulling up water from the well and drinking. Mama Sita, of course, finds her and pulls her inside. Claire is hurt and dehydrated, but even through the language barrier, we can see that Mama Sita is smart, a no-nonsense person. She and Claire manage to bond over that similarity, understand each other, as smart women each doing their best under their own incredible circumstances. Mama Sita presents Claire to Father Fogden, and they talk. Father Fogden is a bit of a character, a little on the odd side, but not so odd that we just dismiss him as nothing more than a comedy beat. While Fogden seems disconnected from reality at first, in truth, he's just seeing reality through a mystical lens. He can still be a pothead. That's okay. That night, drinking wine that Father Fogden has given her, because we know Claire never turns down a drink, Claire tells him her story. Not all of it, not 200 years through the stones, just what happened on the ships and that she has to warn Jamie. But she recognizes how unlikely that is, that jumping off the boat may not have been the best choice. She questions herself, questions her own connection to reality. What had she been thinking? All she knows is that she must journey to the local town and do everything in her power to get to Jamie before Jamie gets to Jamaica. Father Fogden listens carefully, puffing on his pipe, and then talks to her of predestination. Does she believe that Jamie is meant to die a traitor's death in Jamaica? Claire doesn't understand. She doesn't know how Jamie's going to die. She is a woman of science. She can't tell the future. Sure you can, Father Fogden says, but only if you're willing to look to the past. And then he raises his head, listening to something Claire can't hear. He busts out laughing and says, quite right, Coco, and we see that he's addressing a coconut. 
and Claire smiles and sets the glass down, unfinished, and gives it a dubious look, just as Mamacita comes in to shuffle Claire off to bed. As she turns to go with Mamacita, Father Fogden says, You must not lose your faith, my dear. And Claire turns on the word. Faith. In the morning, Claire helps Mamacita launder the clothes and prepare her for the trip to the local town. While they are waiting for everything to dry and be ready to go, Father Fogden takes Claire on a walk around his little oasis and tells her the story of Hilda. Claire listens as he tells the story, and he ends it with, Most people live ordinary lives, but some do not. For them, people like you, people like me, people like Hilda and Mamacita. For us, the rules of the world are different. For us, life is often harder, but also... It's more magical. Things happen to us that don't happen to ordinary people. For us, the wildly improbable becomes sometimes not only possible, but impossible to avoid. Do you think this is true? Claire thinks on this for a bit and says, I don't know. Father Fogden bends over and picks up a white stone, handing it to Claire and says, I think perhaps you do. Sometimes there can be magic in something as simple and ordinary as a stone. Claire takes the stone and contemplates it. And as she does, Father Fogden says, We must wait to travel to town. Claire argues that she can't wait, that she must leave as soon as possible. But Father Fogden simply says, What made you jump off that ship? Knowing how unlikely it was that you could possibly find your husband, why did you do it? Claire shakes her head, unsure. I don't know. He smiles at her. It was faith, was it not? Again at the sound of the word, Claire is struck. She stares down at the stone in her hand. He refers again to his adventure with Hermenahilda. Had he done the reasonable thing, the rational thing, they both would have died in Cuba. But because they made a choice based on faith and not reason, they had many more years together in this happy place. It was Hermenahilda who placed the stones to mark the paths there, and he follows them every day on his walks. She still guides him through life. Besides, Coco says it isn't time yet, Father Fogden says. And Coco is never wrong. The next morning, a desperate Claire tries her talking to Coco fake-out with Father Fogden, and he humors her throughout. Afterward, he takes the coconut from her and gently places it back on the shelf, saying to Coco, Don't be insulted, Coco. She is frightened and worried and lost. But you must be lost first before you can be found. Is that not true? That evening, Claire grabs her things and sneaks out. The full moon is bright, and she finds a path of white stones and follows it, hoping it will lead her to the town. After a few hours, the stones just stop, and she's alone in the jungle. She has no idea where she is, and there are no more white stones to guide her. Frustrated and tired and terrified, she sits down on a log and cries, well and truly lost. She gets up and accidentally kicks the log back a bit, and under it are a bunch of white stones. She picks them up in her hands, looks at the path behind her, and the unmarked space ahead. She whispers faith and starts into the jungle, placing the stones behind her as she goes. One by one, she places them, and just as the sun comes up, she arrives on the beach. It's empty, no town, but there are logs, tools, and she sees a man's shirt drying on a tree branch. She steps out onto the beach and sees a ship in the distance. People are moving on it. She steps out further and looks. It looks a lot like the Artemis. And behind her, she hears, Sassanac? She whirls around, and there's Jamie, pulling his shirt off the tree branch. They stare at each other, stunned, and then run into each other's arms. If I had my way, that would be the end of the episode. That this episode would be about Claire's sense of the rational conflicting with her intense personal faith. Science versus mysticism. And how can we bring these two things into balance in our lives despite their apparent contradictions? It would show us that Claire wasn't being stupid and unreasonable, but rather following an internal guide she couldn't explain, but which led her to the exact place she was always supposed to be. 
with Jamie. But those aren't the rules I laid out. The rules I laid out are that I have to start and end this episode where the episode actually starts and ends. So, Jamie tells her the story of the shipwreck. She sees Fergus and Marsley. They are all reunited. And the rest of the episode can play out pretty much as it does, with the wedding being less insanely farcical. Fergus and Marsley getting married, and Jamie giving Fergus his name. This is a beautiful moment. And the whole do-you-have-a-cock thing was dumb in the book, it's dumb in the show, cut that. Father Fogden can be a little strange, but we don't want this groundling insanity to overtake what could and should be a lovely moment. In the end, with Jamie and a drunk Claire having fevered sex in the captain's quarters. It's a fun scene. I like it in the book, too. I don't care for Yi Tian Cho at the door. That does go a bit over the line tonally. I'd hit on the science of the medicine, the thing Claire could put her back up against, and then end it with them lying in bed together, with Claire wondering at it all, confessing that she had no idea how she was going to find him when she jumped from the ship. Jamie would then confess about the insane mutiny thing, saying that he lost his mind for a while, and then he remembered an old Scottish saying, What is for you? Will no go by you. And then he says... I had to believe that the same God that brought you back to me would not take you from me again so soon. They would snuggle together for a bit, and then Jamie would say something about the task they have ahead of them, finding young Ian while evading the authorities that would see Jamie hanged. And as she clasps his hand to her chest, she closes her eyes and says, we'll just have to have faith. And they fall asleep together. And maybe that note hits the whole faith thing a bit too hard on the nose, but yeah, that's what I would have done. Surely you have a surname, do you not? Uh, I cannot marry you properly without one. Um. Fraser. His name is Fergus Claudel Fraser. While there's so much in this episode that is just unfathomable, there are a lot of lovely moments here that I think we can acknowledge. First, the music. God damn, but Bear McCreary can score anything. The lovely discordant beats as Claire finds her way to shore, taking the theme of over the sea to sky and marrying it with tropical tones that convey this sense of being utterly lost. I love it. I also love the scene with Claire and Marsley talking before the wedding, connecting as women, and Claire earning Marsley's trust. Marsley reminds me so much of Jenny, and Jenny didn't like or trust Claire at first either. I love seeing this relationship develop. Maybe you're not the devil after all. Another thing I absolutely adored was the marriage of Fergus and Marsley. The sitcom-y farce of it all with Father Fogden and the cock stuff notwithstanding, the moment Jamie gives his name to Fergus, it's beautiful. I do have a question about Jamie's tendency to rename people. Fergus was born Claudel in France, but Jamie's renamed him to Fergus, thus taking ownership of him in a strange way. He did the same with Yi Tian Cho, calling him Mr. Willoughby and taking ownership over his identity. I like the power of names in Outlander, but the presumption of Jamie in renaming human beings, reforming their very identities, I'm not sure how to take that. But if you step outside the base presumption, Jamie's renaming of people doesn't lead to ownership. It leads to service. He called Claire Sassenach and dedicated himself to her. He called Claudel Fergus and became responsible for the boy, giving him family. It's perhaps most egregious with Yi Tian Cho, but by making him Mr. Willoughby, Jamie gives him a job and a purpose, brings him on as part of the team, and in return, Jamie takes responsibility for this man. 
On its surface, this renaming seems presumptuous and patriarchal. But for Jamie, I think the process of renaming is when he makes a promise to these people. You are this to me. You are Sassanac. You are Fergus. You are Willoughby. And now I dedicate myself and my power to your protection. I don't know. I don't know. What do you guys think? All right, that'll do it for today. This episode of Sex and Whiskey was brought to you by at VeggieRunt on Twitter, who supports Chipperish Media at the power producer level and as a reward gets to produce whatever show she wants. Thank you at VeggieRunt. And thank you to everyone who supports Chipperish Media and makes all of this possible. Visit patreon.com slash chipperish to find out how you too can become a sex and whiskey producer. Then join me on Sunday, December 3rd at 8 p.m. Eastern using the hashtag SawChip for a live tweet of the broadcast on stars. And I'll see you right afterward with my thoughts on season three, episode 12, The Bakra. Slajava. Sex and Whiskey is a Chipperish Media production and is entirely funded by passionate story lovers like you. Visit patreon.com slash chipperish to find out how you can become a Chipperish Media supporter. <laughs>